Matthew 5.48 is our text for this morning. The title of the message is, Is Perfect Possible? Is Perfect Possible? Matthew 5.48 is a summary, I think, summary statement from Jesus for everything that he has said up to this point in the Sermon on the Mount. As a matter of fact, this single verse here sums up not only everything that Jesus has already said and everything that he will say from this point forward through the remainder of the Sermon on the Mount, but I would submit to you that it sums up the entire teaching of the Scriptures. If the bar didn't seem quite beyond reach before when Jesus encouraged us and challenged us to be poor in spirit, to mourn over our sin, to be meek and hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, to be salt and light in the world in which we live, to to restrain our anger, to, to forego any lustful thought that might find its way into our heart or in our mind, to keep our word, to let our yes be yes and our no be no, to not bite back to retaliate when we're offended or injured in any way and to love not only your neighbor but love your enemy. If the bar didn't seem high before, the bar is certainly high this morning. As Jesus utters the words, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I mean, who can measure up to such a perfect standard? Who can attain such a requirement? The answer, no one. No one without exception. And that's the whole point. You see, the Sermon on the Mount is not meant to give us a set of hoops that we must jump through in order to gain the kingdom. Though there have been entire religious establishments, entire religious movements that are built upon that false assumption. We need to be clear about the fact that Jesus is not laying out for us a set of rules and regulations that if they're just followed, we'll be saved. Martin Lloyd-Jones rightly says, If we feel that the Ten Commandments... The ordinary moral standards of decency are difficult enough. These statements, these statements right here in the Sermon on the Mount about not even looking with lust, about going the second mile, about throwing the cloak together with the coat and so on, there is nothing more discouraging than the Sermon on the Mount. Why? Because it seems to throw us right out. And it seems to damn our every effort before we have even started. It seems utterly impossible. Friends, let me tell you, that's the point. That's the point that Jesus is trying to make in the Sermon on the Mount. You see, the Sermon on the Mount doesn't tell us how good we are. It doesn't stroke our egos. It doesn't build us up. Rather, it tears us down. It dismantles our pride. It decimates our self-sufficiency, and it destroys any perception that we can attain God's righteous standard on our own. It is meant, it is meant, mark my words, It is meant to cut the feet of self-sufficiency right out from under us and leave us helpless and hopeless unless a Savior steps in. And that's exactly what he's done. He has cut Jesus. He has cut our feet of self-sufficiency right out from under us so that we would not be tempted to look to ourselves as our own source of sufficiency. Instead, we would see our spiritual bankruptcy and our, our dire need for a Redeemer and Savior. The whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is to expose our hearts, to show us how we fail to meet God's exacting requirements, and then to lead us, to lead us to look to Jesus, who alone can empower us to meet God's righteous standard of perfection. 
You see, the great purpose of salvation, the great goal of the gospel, the great yearning heart of God is that we would look like him, that we would be like him. And so Jesus says in Matthew 5, 48, you, therefore, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let me encourage you to stand this morning. I'm going to back up just so we get the entire context. We're going to read from verses 43 through 48 this morning. Matthew, recording Jesus' words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he, God, makes his Son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on both the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing that is more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Here's our text. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. I want to encourage you to take notes this morning if you have an outline in front of you. If you don't have an outline in front of you, I would encourage you to find a piece of paper, grab a pen, even from its, if it's from a neighbor. You'll listen better if you take notes. Point number one is this. God is perfect. Therefore, his standard is perfection. God is perfect in his nature, in his character, in his attributes, In the sum total of his essence, he is perfect. Therefore, or as a result, or consequently, his standard cannot be anything less than perfection. There are three words in the Bible that are translated perfect. There's two in the Old Testament. There's one in the New Testament. The first Hebrew word we find in the Old Testament is the word tamim. It's translated oftentimes perfect, but it's also translated in the Old Testament as being without blemish or without spot or complete or full or undefiled or whole. Tamim. It's completeness. It's the first word we see in the Hebrew Old Testament. It was used of God back in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. Moses writes, the rock, speaking about God, his work is perfect. All his ways are justice. Our God is Tamim. He is perfect in all his ways. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Tamim was also used to refer to sacrificial animals that were without blemish. Oftentimes when you see that word in the Old Testament, without blemish, that's the word Tamim. To be perfect, without spot. It was used to describe those who were blameless before the Lord. Noah was referred to as Tamim. David was referred to as Tamim, even though we know both of those men failed. You ever thought about this? Just side note here. God seems to go to great lengths in Scripture to show us or to reveal to us the fallenness of biblical characters. You know why that is? So that we're never encouraged to look to them to be the standard. So God goes to great lengths to show us that Noah finds himself drunk one night and exposed in a tent to show us David committing adultery with Bathsheba so that we would not be encouraged to look to them as being the exacting standard, but would look to the Redeemer God who came in and changed their hearts as being the exacting standard. 
The second word we see in the Old Testament is the word shalem. It comes from the word shalom. You know that word is peace in the Old Testament. Shalem means whole or complete or just. But the one major New Testament word that we find that is oftentimes translated perfect is the word teleos. It carries the idea of growth or coming to full age or being fully developed or ripening. It's often translated mature. As a matter of fact, it's translated that way in Colossians 1, 28 and 29. We present all men complete or mature in Christ. It's the word teleos. But in the context here in front of us, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, the meaning is that of perfection. It's exactly what it says on the surface of the text. You see, what Jesus is doing here is he's land blasting any perceived goodness that we think we might have. We must be perfect. Why? Because the righteous judge is perfect, and perfection is his standard. That perfection is to be an absolute perfection. I was thinking about this this week in my study. You know, oftentimes in, in various industries, or oftentimes in manufacturing, perfect can have a degree of offsetness. So a manufacturer can say something is perfect or it meets the exacting requirements or standards, but it can be off a degree or two, plus or minus a degree or two. That's not what Jesus is communicating here when he says perfect. It doesn't mean you can be off a degree or two and still be perfect. These are exacting, exacting standards. Absolute perfection. That is perfect adherence, again, to all the Beatitudes, verses 1 through 12. That is perfect adherence to what it means to be salt and light in the world. Just how are we doing there in the last 168 hours? And I am I'm challenged to even ask the question, personally. Absolute perfection when it comes to the absence of even the faintest angry thought or the faintest lustful thought or the faintest unfulfilled word. Absolute perfection when it comes to a turning away from that natural fleshly desire to retaliate when we're injured. Absolute perfection when it comes to loving not only our neighbor, but also our enemy. In other words, if man could live, this is what Jesus is saying, if man could live the way that he told us to in Matthew chapter 5, we'd be truly perfect. The problem is, we can't. Not even close. Like, not even close in the last hour. I mean, from the time we got up this morning and put feet on the floor... And began getting ready for this day to now where we are sitting. Like even in that short amount of time, we have missed the mark. We have failed. And in doing so, apart from Christ, we stand condemned. Because his standard is perfection, unerring perfection. And not a man or a woman has ever met the standard. Save one. And his name is Jesus. Jesus is setting out a breathtaking description of morality which makes God himself to be the standard. Write this down. God has never and will never lower his standard to accommodate humans. God has never and he will never lower his standard to accommodate humans. Instead, he sets forth his own absolute holiness as the bar. You see, we're to be holy for the Lord our God is holy. Leviticus 19.2. We're to be loving because God is love. 1 John 4.7 and the following. And perfect, Jesus tells us here in Matthew 5.48, as our heavenly Father is perfect. 
You see, we don't have to study long and hard. We don't have to look far to see that the demand of scriptures is unerring holiness and exacting perfection. It's clear on every page of the Bible. Every page of the Bible shows us God's exacting perfect standard and our failure to meet it. We're to be blameless just as Jesus is blameless. The problem is that sin entered into the world in Genesis chapter 3, and because of the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners. Romans 5.19. So, number one, God is perfect. His nature, his character, his attributes, and all that he is, he is perfect and righteous. Therefore, as a consequence or subsequently, his demand on us, his standard for us, must be nothing less than perfect. Number two, we are fallen, and we can never meet God's standard. We're fallen, we're depraved, we're sinful to the core, and we can never, never measure up. We can never meet God's exacting, unerring standard. Man's greatest problem is that he can't live up to God's standard of perfection. That's your greatest problem. You turn the radio on, you read magazines, you read the newspaper, and it will tell you that our, our main problem in life is a whole host of other things. But those things pale in comparison to the main problem that we have, and that is that we stand before a thrice holy God, sinful to the core. That is our main problem in this Genesis 3 fallen world. Everything else pales in comparison. We all fall short of God's bar, and in doing so, we show ourselves to be sinners. That's what sin is. It's missing the mark. It's missing the bar. It's not achieving what God has called us to achieve. Paul writes it this way. Familiar text to many of you. Romans chapter 3, verses 22 and 23 says, For there is no distinction. That means you and 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 you. All of us are the same. We're all in the same boat. The problem, the boat's going down. There's no distinction, Paul says. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, the Greek verb there, sinned, it's the Greek word hamartano. It means to err, it means to offend, or it means to trespass. Maybe more illustrative uh, uh, is Hamartano's meaning of to miss the mark. It's, it's actually a term that is derived from the competitive archery world. And it means to hit anywhere on the board except the bullseye. It's what it means to miss the mark. Hamartano. But there is no distinction, for we have all sinned. Hamartano, missed the mark. And as a result, we share not in the prize. This is true of all men. Each one of us, without exception, have missed the mark of God's righteous standard. We're sinners. Hey, quick theological quiz. You ready? Are we sinners because we've sinned? Or do we sin because we're sinners? Are we sinners because we sin? Or do we sin because we are sinners? The answer to that question is important. That's not just a theological riddle. It's vitally important that we understand the distinction that occurs there. It's vitally important to our right understanding and view of sin. Thus, it is critical and vital to our right understanding of man, of who we are. I would submit to you, that we sin 
because we're sinners. We're sinners by nature. I mean, no one has to teach us to sin. As a matter of fact, uh, even non-believers try to teach their children to be good. Now, that definition of good oftentimes is something entirely different from God's exacting standard of perfection. But even non-believers try to teach their children what is right from what is wrong, what is healthy from what is an unhealthy practice. We don't have to teach our children to sin. We come forth from the womb that way. Psalm 51.5, David says, Surely I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. I mean, you put two two-year-olds in a room with a few M&Ms on a table, and what do you get? You get the exact same thing as if you put two 36-year-olds in a room with a few M&Ms. They are mine. My wife will tell you. Mine, me, my. We don't share. It's no thinking for others. It's not put the interests of others before myself. It's not die to self and crucify my flesh. It's get out of my way. Me, mine. We don't have to teach our kiddos that. We sin because we're sinners. We're sinners by nature. That's the teaching. That's the Bible's answer. The Bible's teaching, we're born with a sinful nature, already corrupt, under the curse, without excuse, and justly deserving punishment. The bullseye is perfection. We missed it before we took life's first breath. That's the teaching of the Bible. No one saved Jesus has ever hit it. We all fall short, and as a result, no one will enter heaven by way of his own or her own effort. No matter striving, no matter being good, no matter trying, Stop trying, as a matter of fact. Stop trying and start dying. Unless a kernel of the wheat falls to the ground and what? Dies. It remains only a seed. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Well, lest we wonder how Jesus can demand the impossible, it's important for us to note that just a handful of chapters later in Matthew's Gospel, 19, uh, Matthew chapter 19, verse 26, as a matter of fact, Jesus says, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are fill in the blank. Possible. That's right. With you, impossible. With me, not a chance. But with God, all things are possible. That which God demands, He provides the power to accomplish. You see, the impossible righteousness that God demands becomes possible for those who trust in Jesus Christ because He gives them subsequently His righteousness. Jesus makes perfect the imperfect by means of imputing his own perfection, his own merit, his own righteousness to the sinner's otherwise bankrupt account. Turn over to Psalm chapter 18 for a second. I want you to see something. Psalm chapter 18, verses 30 through 32. I just said, that which God demands, he provides the power to accomplish. The psalmist picks up on that here in Psalm chapter 18. Listen, David writes this. He says, this God, not others, not other lesser deities, not the gods of false religions, this God, Yahweh, Jehovah, him, he alone, his way is perfect, tamim. We've already studied that word, right? He's perfect. He's complete. He's whole. He's lacking nothing. 
And the word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Hallelujah. For who? Who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength. And Look at this here, friends. And made my way blameless. Tamim, same word. His way, Yahweh's way, is perfect. Tamim. And he, he makes my way blameless. Tamim. In and of our own strength, in and of our own power, trying to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, trying to do better, stop doing this, start doing that. It's futile. He, and he alone, makes our way blameless. Do you know that, God? Has he come in and decimated you such that you see your own striving as being in vain? Has he come in and wrecked your life to the point that you see the cross as being your only hope? Not a hope, plus some other hopes, may equal enough hope, but that the cross that Jesus Christ willingly and voluntarily shed his blood on is your only hope? If he has not come in and decimated your life such that that is the case for you, friends, lovingly, you're not a Christian. Whatever religious experience you have had, whatever religious roles you have been in, whatever religious accolades or accomplishments you may have, those are great, but at the end of the day, they won't save you. They don't make you a Christian any more than you living in the garage makes you a car. I mean, it's the very thing that, that some people came up to Jesus, and we'll get here in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 and the following. It says, Lord, Lord, I mean, check out our spiritual resume. I mean, did, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, did we not drive out many demons? Did we not perform many good works? And Jesus looks at them and he says, away from me, you evildoers. I never, what? Knew you. Knew you. Don't mistake Christian activity for true conversion. That's a fatal, fatal flaw. Don't mistake Christian activity for true conversion. Jesus has not come in and decimated you so that the cross is your only hope and in doing so built you up by the cross. And you're trusting in something else other than Jesus. See what David does here in Psalm 18? He answers the question, who is God? God is the one who is perfect. And what does this perfect God do for us in verse 32? Well, he works in us to make sinful men blameless or perfect. And how does God do this? I'm glad you asked. Bible teachers have often understood God's perfecting the saints, God's perfecting work in, in a Christian as being in one way, that is, by grace through faith. A person becomes a Christian by grace, through faith, there's no other name. There's no other way. For it is by grace you've been saved, through faith, this not of yourselves, not by works, so that no man can boast. There's no other way. One way. There's one name under heaven, given to men, 
among whereby we must be saved. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Interpretation, you can't go over me, you can't go around me, you can't go under me, you have to come through me. That is the story of the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. But that salvation is oftentimes seen by Bible teachers or theologians, though it's one salvation, one way of salvation, as having three distinct facets. Three distinct facets. Here's what I mean by that. God perfects us positionally at salvation. How does he do that? He does that by perfecting our record. We call that justification. He justifies us in his sight. And then God perfects us positionally through the Christian life as he causes us by his grace and by the indwelling Holy Spirit to bear more and more resemblance to Christ. We call this sanctification. And then there's coming a day which is inescapable by every single one of us, where we will either breathe life's final breath or Jesus will step back into the world in which he's made and take his own to be with him for all eternity. Whichever one of those two events happens first will conclude this work of perfecting in what the Bible refers to as our glorification. One salvation having three facets. If you think about a diamond, you look at it, it's got different facets. Those three facets are our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification. Let's take a few minutes and talk about those. Because this is what it means for a Christian to be perfect, while at the same time a Christian is being made perfect, while at the same time, upon death or the return of Christ, the Christian will once and for all, and in a final sense, be perfect. Number three on your outline, if you're taking notes, is this. God makes us perfect positionally. How so? He does it by justification. God makes us perfect positionally at salvation, and he does so by justifying us. Question for you here. How good does a man have to be to please God? How good does a man have to be to please God? Look back at verse 48. The answer, as good as God is. You must be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. How good does man have to be to please God? The answer, Jesus' answer was, as good as God. How good does a man have to be to stand in the presence of God? The answer, as good as God is. That's how good a man has to be in order to stand in the presence of God. If one falls in the slightest degree, short of the standard of God's exacting standard of perfection and holiness then that man or that woman is unacceptable to God. It's what the prophet Habakkuk means in Habakkuk 1.13 when he says, speaking about God, your eyes are too pure to even look on evil. You can't tolerate wrong. You see, the world that we live in thinks that God is like some, some mystical, magical Santa Claus. You can just kind of sit on his lap and he'll bounce you around for a little while and he's okay with your life and he doesn't matter what you do and you can have your best life now and you can live it up and enjoy this and that. It's like, You'll find it in books, unfortunately, on Christian bookshelf, bookseller shelves, but you won't find that teaching in your Bible. You won't find that teaching in your Bible. Jesus isn't your buddy. He's holy. He's Lord. He's master. You look at how people came into the presence of God throughout the Bible, and you find they get low. That's right. What does a subject do when he comes into the presence of a king? Well, he takes a knee 
or the king takes his head. Right? Humility, lowliness. You are God and I am not. You are king and I am subject. You are creator and I am creation. We get low. We get low. So because God's eyes are too pure to look on evil, because he can't tolerate wrong, God must do something to, per- to, to perfect our sinful, marred record. But how does he do this? How does God do that? Well, in order to understand why and how God perfects our sinful, marred record, we need to understand that our sin is much more vast and much more pervasive than what it does to the individual sinner or others. Let me rewind that statement. It's real important. In in order to understand how and why God must perfect our record, we need to understand that sin is much more powerful, it is much more pervasive, it is much more destructive than what it does to us or what it does to others. Sin splatters, by the way. Your sin affects somebody else. You don't sin in a vacuum. Here's what I mean by that. I mean that before your sin is destructive in your own life, before your sin splatters onto others, first and foremost, our sin is a grave, inexcusable violation of God's holiness. That is problem number one. Before my sin is devastating to me, before it is destructive in my life, before it's like battery acid in my life, And in my relationships, I must first see my sin as being an offense against God. That's what it is at its core. To sin is to declare war against God and his holiness and his justice. We all like sheep have gone astray. We all do. We, in effect, when we do, declare war against God. And because God is holy, that is because he is set apart, that is because he is without sin... Because he's perfect in all his ways, he cannot simply ignore our sin. He cannot simply overlook the treachery of our sin. God must do something about it. Now, I've said this before, and I'll say it again, because it bears repeating. God never exclusively forgives sin. Let that bounce around for a second. God never exclusively forgive sin. You say, well, pastor, what do you mean by that? Well, here's what I mean by that. In order for God to forgive, which he does, I mean, we can look at the Bible over and over and over. In, in most books of the Bible, we, we see redemption, we see forgiveness taking place. But in order for God to forgive... His justice must be upheld and satisfied. God never forgives exclusively. That is, apart from or without from his justice being upheld and his justice being satisfied. All sin, no matter how minor we might consider it to be, must be atoned for. Atoned is a 16-cylinder Christian word. It means paid for. All sin, without exception, no matter how small we consider it to be, must be paid for. It is on the basis of sin paid for, it is on the basis of sin atoned for, that God forgives. But forgiveness is never granted apart from sin being 
paid for. So, consequently, God became a man. John 1.14, and he took on human flesh. He was tempted in every way, just as we are, Hebrews 4.15, yet without sin. Which, as a result, qualified him and him alone, Jesus, the innocent, to bear sin's penalty on the cross in our place, subsequently canceling all claims of justice against us, the sinner. That's the gospel, friends. It's not the gospel of do you go to church. It's not the gospel of what office in the church do you hold. It's not the gospel of how many church camps you've been to. It's not the gospel of how many verses do you have memorized. It's not the gospel of how Christian-y do you look on the outside and how many bumper stickers do you have on the car, what movies you go to, what movies you don't go to. There's a lot of wisdom in all those things. That's not the gospel. The gospel is this. We're fallen, infinitely fallen, decimated, destroyed, pointed towards eternal destruction, and Jesus stepped in. And Jesus did what we could never do in that he lived a perfectly righteous life, and then he was nailed to a Roman cross, the innocent for the guilty. And He drank God's just and righteous wrath down to the dregs. John chapter 19, Jesus uttered those words from the cross, it is finished. That doesn't mean Jesus saves the whole world. That doesn't mean that everybody's on the locomotive to heaven. It means that those whom turn away from their sin, the word we use there is repent, and put their faith in Jesus Christ alone, not Jesus plus their own righteousness, not Jesus plus their own merit, not Jesus plus their own striving, not Jesus plus anything, Jesus and Jesus alone, trusting in his completed, finished work on the cross, What Jesus does in that moment is he takes all of his righteousness, all of his perfect record, and exchanges it for our sinful, marred, corrupt, damnable record. That's what Paul was speaking about in 2 Corinthians 5.21 when he says, God made him, speaking about Jesus, who knew no sin. He was without sin. God made him to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's the greatest exchange that's ever taken place on the face of the planet. Do you know him that way? Do you know him because he stood in your stead on Calvary's cross and bore the weight of your sin? Do you know him in that way? If you don't know him in that way, you don't know him at all. If you don't know him in that way, then you haven't been justified. The record that stood against you has not been canceled And therefore, it still stands above your own head. Have you been justified? It's on the basis of Jesus' completed and acceptable work on the cross that God can forgive a guilty sinner. You see, the cross isn't just an example. You know, we oftentimes paint it on our bodies and we wear it around our necks and we put bumper stickers on our car and we put it in churches, and and that's great. But the cross isn't just an example. Neither, neither is the cross a meaningless tragedy. The cross is the place where God punished sin and canceled its claims against those who put their faith in Christ alone. Do you know the cross that way? If you don't, then its work is not effectual in your life.
The writer of Hebrews speaks about this particular facet or aspect of God's work of perfecting his children in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, when he says this, for by one offering, that's the offering of Christ, he has perfected, teleos, for all times those who are being sanctified. Have you been perfected by being justified by Christ alone? Number four, God makes us perfect practically or in practice by sanctifying us. God makes us positionally perfect at salvation. The moment that you put your faith in Christ, the moment that you repent of your sin, that legal declaration is made, justified. God's, uh, Jesus' perfect record credited to your account. You are fitted, you are outfitted, you are ready for heaven that moment. In God's eyes, he sees you as if he is looking at his own son, Jesus Christ, perfect, blameless, without spot or wrinkle or any such defect. Your sin paid for as far as the east is from the west. It has been forgiven as far as the depths of the ocean. And friends, God puts a sign out there that says no fishing. It's finished. It's paid for. But God makes us practically more like Christ from the moment of conversion Until death, we call that sanctification. If justification is the event of being made positionally perfect, then sanctification is the process of being made practically and continually perfect. Again, sanctification begins the moment that we come to faith in Christ. And it ends when we breathe life's final breath or Jesus returns to take us home. In other words, it's the parentheses that exists between conversion and death. That's what sanctification is. It's the parentheses that, that exists between conversion and death. Everything in between, God is making us more like his son. He's conforming us more and more into the image of Christ. This is the biblical doctrine of progressive or ongoing sanctification. It teaches that though we are perfect in one sense, that's positionally, justification, we're far from perfect in another sense, that's practically. You see, to set perfection before his followers means that Jesus saw them. And Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. When Jesus sets perfection as the standard before his followers and subsequently before us, his followers, that means that he is putting before us the clear teaching that there is always something to be striving for. No matter how far along the path of Christian service we are, no matter how long we've been walking with Jesus, there's still something to aim for. There's still areas to grow in. There's still a wholeheartedness about being a Christian that we must strive for. Now, it's important that we note here, let me just give you a a little note here. Jesus is not teaching in Matthew 5:48, he's not teaching the doctrine of Christian perfectionism. Now, let me, let me make a distinction as to what that means and what that is in light of everything that I've said thus far. There's a wave of teaching out there in the world in which you live that is referred to as the holiness movement. And this modern holiness movement arose, arose largely, though not exclusively, from John Wesley's teaching of Christian perfectionism. Simply stated, many teachers claim that because of Matthew 5.48, there is a possibility of reaching a state of sinless perfection in this life. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. To press Jesus' words into that mold 
is to make Jesus say something that causes absolute discord with the rest of his sermon, and really with the rest of Scripture. I mean, Jesus has already indicated in the Beatitudes that we're to hunger and thirst after righteousness. This is to be a perpetual, ongoing characteristic of his disciples. Why? Because we sin. So we're to continually be growing, changing, hungering, thirsting for righteousness. And in the next chapter, which will be in next week, Jesus is going to begin to teach us that we must be careful that we don't become self-righteous. We must be careful that we pray continually, that we seek forgiveness of our debts, that we invest in treasures of heaven and not treasures of earth, that we guard our hearts, that we be anxious for nothing. Why would Jesus say all those things if I could be sinlessly perfect? In this life, I can be positionally perfect in this life. As a matter of fact, I'm not going to heaven unless I am positionally perfect in this life by way of justification. But at the same time, this teaching that exists out there, it's false teaching, it's unbiblical teaching of Christian perfectionism is not biblical. That you can be sinlessly perfect in this life. There are clear indicators in Scripture, that Jesus didn't expect his followers to become morally perfect in this life. As a matter of fact, 1 John uh, chapter 1, if we say we have no sin, we what? We deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. You see, unfortunately, a sinless state is not supported either by the Bible or by human experience. As a matter of fact, James reminds us in James chapter 3, he says, we all stumble in many ways. If a man doesn't stumble, then he's able to bridle himself. In other words, he's able to keep himself perfect, and we know that's not the case, right? We know also that Paul certainly didn't see himself as having arrived or, or to be in some sort of sinless uh, perfection. Romans chapter 7, I mean, Paul, this is a familiar text to many of you probably, but Paul, after his conversion, by the way, there are some that teach that Romans chapter 7 is prior to Paul's conversion. I think that's preposterous, or preposterous but Romans chapter 7, Paul, after his conversion, said, for I don't even understand my own actions. I mean, I mean the, the very things that I want to do, I don't do. And the very things that I don't want to do, I, I find myself doing those things. Wretched man am I. Who will save me from this body of death, Paul says. And then he goes right into the gospel and he says, Blessed be the God of, our, uh, of, of Jesus Christ. Blessed be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Later, Paul went on to say in Philippians chapter 3, he said, Not that I've already obtained all this, not that I'm already perfect, but what I do is I press on to make it my own. I press on. Let me say just a word here, really briefly, about God's responsibility in your sanctification and your responsibility in your sanctification. I've mentioned this before, but the Christian life is not a let go and let God exercise. Makes for great t-shirts, but it's not in your Bible. You won't find it anywhere. Okay? The Christian life is not a let go and let God exercise. It's a God works in and you work out exercise. So the Christian life is. God works in. He justifies you at conversion. He removes your heart of stone, gives you a heart of flesh, puts his spirit in you, and causes you to walk in his ways, Ezekiel 36, 26, and the following. Okay? That's what God does. And he continually, he continually, day by day, moment by moment, fills the believer as we walk in the spirit, right? And not according to the flesh. He abides with us. Nearer to us is he than the twelve because he abides in us, not just with us. God's responsibility in sanctification is that he works in us. He gives us the power. He does the changing. Paul talks about this in Colossians 1, 28 and 29. It says, him we proclaim, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete, teleos there, perfect in Christ. For this purpose I labor, striving according to 
his power, energia. It's the word that is used for God's effectual working, God's effectual power in the life of a believer. We proclaim Christ, we, 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 we strive to present men complete, perfect in Christ, and we do so by his power. God works in. Now, your responsibility, you work it out. You work out what he's working in. Let me, let me give you some fighter verses here. Okay, Just jot the references down. You can go back later. Romans 6, 12 through 13. Romans 6, 12 through 13. Paul says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Hey, that's not a let go, let God verse. That's the antithesis. Okay? Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. And he goes on and he says, Instead, present yourself to God as those who are alive from the dead. You have a part in this process. How about Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2? Probably a familiar text to many of you. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. Did you notice the subject there? God is not the subject. God does the working and justification. Now you and I, we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice because of his mercy. We are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind because of his mercy. I work out what he has worked in. How about 1 Corinthians 9, 27? Paul says, I discipline my body and make it my slave. Hey, if you think you're going to float down the river of the Christian life unscathed by just going with the flow, you're deceived. You're deceived. It takes work. It takes grit. It takes the pursuit of holiness, dependent upon God's grace. I can't do it on my own. No more than I could have saved myself on my own. I'm dependent upon God's grace for growth and change and sanctification in the Christian life, but at the same time, I'm not without responsibility. Read Jerry Bridges' book, The Discipline of Grace. It's phenomenal, and it will help you sort these things out in your heart and your mind. How about be doers of the word? How about 1 Peter 1.15? Like the one who's holy, he's called you to be holy yourselves in all your behavior. You have a responsibility here, okay? Now, let me say just a few things about Number five on your outline. God makes us perfect finally by way of glorification. God makes us perfect finally by way of glorification. The final stage of God's work perfecting the saints is that he is to perfect them completely and finally at the moment of death. This is the hope of every believer. This is the comforting grace that transforms the believer's view of death. That, this, is, this is what allows us to say that we're, we're no longer afraid of death. and no longer fear death. Is death an enemy? Yes, death is an enemy. It's the last enemy for sure. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 26. But it's also the portal of perfection with which we'll never know in this life. It's the doorway that we walk through, so to speak, to final and full perfection when we will finally shed this earth suit. Okay, everybody grab a hunk of arm or a hunk of meat. This is your earth suit, okay? If you know Christ, new heart, indwelling Holy Spirit, same earth suit. That's the war of the flesh. That's Romans 7. Why do I do the things I don't want to do? The things I do, I don't, you know. That's the war of the flesh. But there's coming a day when we will walk through death's door and we'll see it, as Paul said, great gain because we know that it is to rid ourselves of this sinful earth suit once and for all. It's to see the Lord as he is and so to be like him. It's to throw off this encumbering flesh and to worship him in unfettered, sinless perfection. Friends, if that does not get your heart excited, only a new heart will. 
only a new heart will. You see, death brings the believer into the presence of Christ, which results in the believer becoming perfectly Christ-like. Let me leave you with this sure promise this morning. Paul writes this in Philippians 1.6, familiar text to you all. He says, for I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Let me give you three just practical thoughts here. Number one, God has never and will never start a work that he does not complete. If he has started a work in you by means of justification, by means of saving your soul, by means of wrecking your life and bringing you to the point where you see the cross as your only hope, you can rest assured, you can take it to the bank. It's as good as gold. He'll finish what he started. That would have been a good place for an amen. Second thought here is that you'll inevitably become like Jesus. That's the good work. Being confident in this, that he who began a good work in you, what's the good work? Well, the good work is that you and I begin to look more like Jesus. So you will inevitably, if you are truly justified, if you have truly come to know Christ, you will begin to look more like Jesus. And then lastly, you need to know that God won't give up on his purpose of making you Christ-like even when you want him to. God won't give up on, make, on his purpose to make you more Christ-like even when you want to. And you say, well, wait a minute, Pastor. What do you mean when I want to? Every time we sin, we want him to. We choose sin rather than his grace. We choose the bitterness of sin over his enduring and abiding sweetness. James Montgomery Boyce says this. He says this is a great principle. The fact that God won't give up on his purpose of making us Christ-like even when we want him to. Boyce says, this is a great principle. God is determined to lead you in righteousness. So when you sin, he will, great, he will deal gently with you if he can. But he will also deal roughly with you when he must. He will even break your life into little pieces if he is forced to do so. That is how committed God is to making you more like his son. Is perfect possible, friends? Perfect is not only possible, I would submit to you, but perfect is imperative for us to stand in the presence of a thrice holy God. And he makes us perfect by justifying us. He is making us perfect through the process of progressive sanctification, that parentheses in life, and he will once and for all finally make us perfect when we step through death's door and stand in his presence, see him as he is, and thus are like him as he is.